Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, December 22nd, we are studying Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. God's goodness and his loving kindness have appeared in Christ Jesus to save us. And this has happened not because of any righteous works of ours, but solely out of God's mercy, his mercy that has been poured out upon us in holy baptism. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Dean Wenthe. Dr. Wenthe serves as Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Wenthe, welcome to Sharper Iron. It's a great privilege to be with you. Dr. Wenthe, we're looking at Titus 3, this particular section, because it is the appointed epistle reading for Christmas dawn. If There are four different Christmas services in our, our lectionary. You can have Christmas Eve, Christmas midnight, Christmas dawn, and Christmas day. I, I think the Christmas midnight and Christmas dawn maybe are the ones that, if, if you're going to skip one, maybe those are the, the most likely. But you're probably going to have some kind of service on Christmas day. So Christmas dawn, Titus 3, what's the connection? Why, why are we hearing from Titus 3 on, on Christmas? I think this passage and that it uh, basically summarizes the gospel in a wonderful way. And uh, as I looked over it, it especially kind of hits on the timing issue, that uh, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So I think that's probably why uh, this text is recommended. It's uh, the uh, timing of God in sending his Son and uh, that sets the stage in a way for all of history uh, is assumed there that uh, from creation to the end of time this was the moment uh, when the goodness and loving kindness of god our savior appeared uh, it's a beautifully uh, coordinated accent on the incarnation and the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that word appeared there in verse 4 stands out to me as well, particularly because we just finished studying Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. That's the appointed reading for that Christmas midnight service. And that word of, of God's grace appearing, that, that same appearing is is very prominent in that text. And so here again, to see that, I, I think you're right, that's the, the connection to Christmas, and we'll get a chance to talk more about that. So we're, we're jumping into to chapter 3, today, and I think a fairly familiar passage, because this is a, a text that's quoted in our small catechism. But anytime you jump into an epistle reading or any book of the Bible, sort of, sort of cold, it, it's hard to, to get your bearings. So, Dr. Wenthe, help us to, to get our bearings here in the letter to Titus. What do we need to know about this letter as a whole? What are some of the, the things that he's Paul's been doing leading up to, to chapter 3? Okay, well, I think uh, Paul sets the stage right away in uh, the greeting uh, where he writes this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, again, that emphasis on time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And I think that sets the stage for the whole epistle because it identifies his uh, listeners, his uh, the addressees, the people he's writing to, as the elect, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So he identifies who he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he uh, immediately talks about the elect. And that has a rich Old Testament uh, tone to it, that God's chosen people, the elect that he has called out uh, for the knowledge of the truth. So I think a, a wonderful way to think about all of the epistles of Paul is he establishes identity before he suggests any movement or practice. Uh, one way to put that grammatically is that in Paul, uh, the epistles, the indicatives, usually in the salutation, precede the imperatives. So when he now appeals to them to live a certain way, he's first established that they are God's elect and they have a knowledge of the truth in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that that opening salutation that he gives in the letter to Titus really does, you know, set the stage for the whole epistle. And obviously we're not looking at the whole epistle right now, but you can see just in those four verses how many connections are there are to the text we're going to look at today. And and again, the the timing that you mentioned and also the word manifested shows up. That's the English translation of of the ESV in Titus 1 verse 3 that the showing forth, which I think relates to the the idea of of appearing, and and I mean this is you know this is something when you think about Christmas like this is God's grace made manifest. I think well that's an Epiphany hymn that I think we sing, so, but there's there's Christmas con- connections there as well. You know that that this is something we wouldn't know about unless God were to show it to us, unless it were to appear on the scene, and and what a what an amazing appearance it really is. Right. I I think you're uh, exactly right that our text, uh, Titus 3, 4 through 7, in a way echoes uh, Paul's greeting. And I think you can almost uh, make the connection to John 1, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then we beheld his glory, uh, the glory of the one who is the tabernacle. And uh, the enfleshment of Christ, the incarnation, is tied to the public display of God's saving work. So uh, the timing uh, is uh, very important. That This is kind of the uh, key moment in all of the world's history where Christ is shown to be our Savior. And uh, then another part of the text that I think is worth noting is uh, not because of works done by us, yeah. But according to his own mercy, uh, this wonderful word, eleos, that, uh, you know, one of the old uh, uh, kind of Greek liturgy says, Kyrie eleison, have, have mercy, Lord. And here uh, Titus emphasizes that it's according to God's own mercy 
that, and then he leads right into uh, baptism, uh, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, so the, which he poured out uh, richly, abundantly, is another translation, through Jesus Christ our Savior. And I think that, you know, to me, the identity uh, question is is kind of nailed down by that because he's referring to their baptismal identity and to the presence of the Holy Spirit. So uh, this uh, short text summarizes uh, so much of Paul's preaching. Going on more on that that idea of the identity that Paul establishes again in the salutation, and then forms the basis for the, the action that, that I mean he does talk a lot about in the book of Titus, Titus chapter two. The the bulk of that is almost like a a table of duties where he gives things to do, and even the the text that immediately precedes what we're looking at today in Titus three verses one and two. You know more things that that we are to do, all of that grounded in the identity in Christ. Again, with the within this context of Titus, Titus is a, a pastoral epistle. Paul is is helping Titus to to understand what it means to be a pastor there in Crete. How how is the identity of Christians so foundational for, for Titus to establish there as a, a pastor in Crete? Why does it matter for them to to know who their identity is in Christ? I think this is a, a really a very uh, practical question that. Uh, we need to keep in mind because the context of Crete was famous for its uh, lack of uh, uh, even uh, kind of natural law righteousness. Uh, Paul, in uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, quotes uh, Epimenides. Uh, he was a uh, Greek author around the 6th century B.C., and uh, Epimenides said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> so, so here Paul is appealing to their identity to, uh, and, and to Titus as pastor uh, to uh, be aware of the context and to manage that so that the Christians aren't uh, suddenly displaying behaviors that around them. If if you look at that list, uh, he says, Paul says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. Uh, they must be silenced. Uh, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound and saved. So I think... Uh, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. So I think the uh, context of Titus displays some of the questions that the church faces today in terms of behaviors that are being displayed uh, in the media by some of the elites in our culture that uh, no longer view uh, horrible actions as uh, evil, but is simply a part of our uh, evolutionary practices. And uh, uh, so the distancing of the Christians in Crete from what was normal Cretan behavior is, is important to Paul, all flowing from their baptismal identity and their 
status as the elect people of God. I mean, I think the the connection between those two, I think, is really important because you know, I mean, you look at the context of Crete, and and then how that compares to our context too. And it's very easy for us as, as Christians to want to stand out in the way that we act and not fall into these evil behaviors that we see all around us. And that is important. But the, the way that Paul ties this together with the, the true Christian doctrine, you know, I mean, looking at the verse, the very beginning of, of chapter two, where he says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to list these behaviors. But then in, in verses 11 through 14, which we studied yesterday, you know, he grounds all that in the truth of who God is as our Savior. And so, you know, the when we think about our our distinctive christian behavior that we seek it's always founded in the the distinctive christian doctrine that we have and i think that's that's something that i i often forget and, and i i'm glad that paul reminds me of it here as, as well as the rest of the scriptures that when i i see these evil behaviors around me it's not just a, a problem of behavior but it is a problem of doctrine and and that the true teaching of who god is and what he's done in christ that's what the world needs uh, more than anything else, because that's that's the final. I mean, that's that's the gift of God that we need. I you know I think you you make a very good point that uh, the church is not about uh, marketing uh, simply uh, moralisms. You know that, uh, or you know the ancient Stoics were pretty good at that, and they had all kind of rules. Uh, the Pharisees there there have been a lots of kind of uh, how to uh, live uh, theories in antiquity and you have to give the Greeks credit they you know if you read Plato Aristotle and and their philosophers had wrestled with what it is to be human and into that wrestling and Paul had it in Athens and in Corinth comes a, a different view of how to live namely to live out of one's identity in Christ, and I think the um, the beauty of that is that uh, we're not uh, crushed by the law, uh, for we know our weaknesses, our frailties uh, when the law looks at us, but we are delivered into Christ, who is then our righteousness and and our identity in him is what really carries us forward to live a distinctive way and uh, you know i've used this analogy if if you read about the hobbit uh in tolkien uh he describes the character of a hobbit you know (laughs) and so hobbits act in a certain way because of who they are and i think paul is grounding his uh, admonitions uh, in that identity and expects the faithful who are in Christ to mold their actions out of their commitment to, to Christ. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's very much in the context of Titus chapter 3. In the, in the verse that comes right before what we're looking at today, Paul, Paul says in, in Titus 3 verse 3, he says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. I mean, he he recognizes, and he, he uses himself there included, we ourselves, this is who we were, but God has rescued us out of that. You know, I mean, and that's a just such a, a wonderful reminder for us as Christians when we think about this, this struggle to, to live according to God's word, 
that like the the evil that we see around us sometimes it may look tempting to our sinful flesh but that's what God saved us out of he saved us from that and and he saved us for these good works that that Paul's holding forth in the letter of Titus but it is that that event of our salvation that the appearance of God's grace in Christ that's the foundation for it and he, I mean I just love the way he keeps bringing us back to that founding our identity in Christ and then from that flow all these good works that he's talking about Right. I, I think you put your finger on a very important aspect of the text, uh, because verse 4, when you read that, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a short word, but it contrasts completely what we have been with what we now are in Christ. Uh, and uh, it's a, a short adversative, but it packs a wallop, because now we no longer... Uh, are what we were <laughs> and and this I, I i just want to say i think is a uh, thread that runs through scripture and uh, the old testament often contrasts the behavior of israel in its rebellions with who the people are now for example in hosea you have these contrasts between you know, you once were no people, uh, low ami, but now you're ami, you're my people. And I think by framing his appeal to uh, Titus and the elect, he's going to, at the beginning and then throughout, uh, contrast the identity before Christ and after along with the behaviors that, that you've underscored. Well, let, let's go ahead and read the text. This is Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. St. Paul writes, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the text for today, Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. And again, that's the appointed epistle reading for the Christmas dawn service. Dr. Wenthe, as we look at this text, before we dig into to specific thoughts and, and things that Paul brings up here, just give us the overall sense. What's, what's Paul saying in these verses? You know, he's underscoring, I think, God's grace in multiple ways. And I think if you look at the movement of these verbs, it's God acting and us benefiting and being constituted because of his action. And he he really, I think, beautifully holds up, for example, in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God. This is uh, interesting. It's one of only two places in the New Testament that uh, philanthropia occurs, which is where we get our uh, philanthropy uh, in English. So there's a an extended kind of emphasis on God's uh, love and his mercy. Uh, for example, God is identified as our Savior, who appears. He saved us, another verb of action from God towards us, and then negating our status, not because of works done by us in righteousness. And then you have another adversative, 
but according to his own mercy. So all the saving is on God's part. And then uh, this reference to holy baptism by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured on out on us richly, or uh, another translation is abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there is a movement of God uh, towards us that is salvific, and uh, he expands that saving work by putting all these beautiful adjectives with it, how uh, lavish and full is God's love, and then concludes with uh, another fine Pauline verb, so that being justified by his grace, we might become uh, co-heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you have a glorious, I think, identity that God has bestowed, uh, sola gratia, by his grace. You know, it's God's action that now we are his. Yeah, I mean, this, by grace alone, That I think that's a fantastic summary of this text, because over and over again, as you said, the verbs, this is what God's doing, and we're the ones benefiting. So let's 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 jump in in, in some detail. You've, I'm going to start with one of the words you mentioned, the, the, the philanthropy is the English word. And I, I believe, if, if I looked at it correctly, in the ESV, philanthropy, that's the word that's translated loving kindness. So, I mean, the word the word philanthropy, if you if you is is quite literally the love of men, right? I mean, that's that's the if you broke it down. So, is there? And I don't, I don't want to push this too far, but the, I mean, in, in my, what I'm hearing here is is echoes of of John three sixteen that God loved the world. So, I mean, you think about what Paul just said in verse three of who we ourselves were, that that those people, the foolish, the disobedient, and all those things. Those are the ones whom God loves. Just like in John three sixteen, He loves the world, the world that didn't know Him, the world that had rejected Him. That's who God loves. I mean, that's a, it, it might, and and this I think when I think about Christmas, this is such a, a beautiful thing, that that God comes into this world out of His love, even though the world's full of of people like this, even though the right. the world has these men who hate Him, still God has this love for men, and it, it shows itself in the you know, in the birth of the Savior. Right. I, I think that's uh, very uh, important. The uh, kind of enfleshment, the incarnation of God, is uh, the full display, uh, not of God's condemning uh, the world, but reaching out to save it. And, and you know, C.S. Lewis, uh, in one comment, said that, uh, the Christian faith is so distinctive that no human uh, being could have imagined it. That, you know, instead of uh, coming as a Roman emperor or uh, a Greek philosopher, Jesus is born uh, to Mary in uh, fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. And he's born in a remote part of the Roman Empire that actually was dreaded. Uh, by soldiers. They didn't want to be assigned to that location because the Jews were a problem to manage. And then he is, you know, uh, from birth, uh, uh, Herod seeks to kill him and they have to flee. So the whole 
narrative of John 3.16 and then the actual birth of Jesus is full of what one might call a theology of the cross, you know, that his his birth is inadequately understood if it's just romanticized or thought to be quaint. And so many of, you know, classical uh, art would, with the, the birth of Jesus, have a, a lamb in the uh, birth scene that uh, was tied in the legs as a kind of uh, symbol that this child has come to save his people and that saving will involve the sacrifice. And I think that's uh, Paul's own kind of understanding of uh, uh, what happens in our baptism. Like if I can just share quickly uh, from uh, Romans 6 that... uh, Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And and then he follows up, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So you have the contrast of life before baptism, life after baptism. Yeah, I mean, that Romans 6 passage makes that contrast. And and putting Titus 3, these verses, in context, you have that same contrast as well, what life is like apart from Christ, but what life is like now that you are joined to Christ in baptism, which is the gift that Paul mentions. And we're going to keep exploring those themes from this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Titus chapter 3 with Dr. Dean Winthy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, December 22nd. We are studying Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 with Dr. Dean Winthy. He is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Winthy, prior to the break, we were looking at the love, the love for men that God has that caused him to make this, I mean, it appeared for us. And and I want to go back to that word when, because you, you brought that up earlier at the very beginning, as this is a, a good co- a Christmas connection, you know, the, the time when this appeared. And, and certainly hearing this text on Christmas brings that to mind. But but as you were talking about, you know, when we were talking about John 3, 16, and really the fullness of this story, and, and then the connection to baptism that Paul makes within this text. I mean, to me, it seems that this, this when 
God's goodness and loving kindness appeared, we should connect that when to Christmas. But I really think we need to connect it even even more broadly than that, that the the win of God's goodness appearing is in everything that Christ does. And then I think this text also allows us to say that the win of God's goodness appearing includes our own baptism, that, that on the day that a, a person is baptized, that is the win of the appearance of God's goodness and, and loving kindness. What, what do you think? I, I think that's a good point to make. When uh, we uh, read uh, the Gospels, when we uh, read the epistles of Paul and the other apostles, we're being treated to the fullness of what that when means. It's, you know, when Jesus says, um, quoting Isaiah, today this is filled uh, in your sight. You know, the, when he takes the, the scroll in the temple, there's a, a moment where, again, we're beholding the Son of God who came to save us. And so his actions are saving not simply on the cross, but leading up to the cross his and beginning with his incarnation. You know, this is a, an organic unity that uh, Christ's saving work uh, brings us. And in our baptism, we're incorporated into that unity of uh, being. And I, I think that's a, a huge plus. Uh, if we read the scriptures and see Christ as the very center, the Holy Trinity, as the way to interpret it, we see the love of God over and over and over, even though uh, human beings are frequently rebelling and fleeing from it, he is still reaching out in Christ. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, the way you were talking there, I mean, I think about the this it comes, I think, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, the way that the he uses the word today in several key locations. One of them being in in Luke chapter two, there in the the what the angel says to the shepherds, you know, today is born for you in the city of David a savior. Or or again in in Luke nineteen, where he's in the house of Zacchaeus and he says, Today salvation has come to this house, or to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, the I mean and, and of course all those, you know, Jesus is is present there bodily. And and so it, well, of course, today that's happening. But but for us right now, when Jesus comes to be present in word and bodily in the sacrament, that's a, a today of God's grace appearing. So that you know, and I, I think this this helps in, in some of the maybe the temptation of the the sentimentality toward Christmas, you know that that when we recognize it's it's not just us remembering a cute scene two thousand years ago, but this is still about the Savior who comes today. I mean, what a that really takes Christmas and, and makes it so much more than than just looking in the nativity. But this is I mean, this is the Savior coming to me right now with that same grace. I you know I think that's a very good point that. Uh, we might think uh, that when we look back at Christmas, that the world uh, Jesus entered was uh, much more pleasant than our world, <laughs> whereas in fact uh, the world was exactly what it is today: wars and rumors of war, and uh, the land that Jesus lived in was full of all kind of uh, violence and uh, hardship because of internal and external pressures. Uh, you know, the, the centurion that was in Capernaum with Jesus, uh, 
he was there for a reason because there were rebels in the caves of Arbella and and to de-romanticize the uh, appearance of Christ actually helps us see how relevant he is today in a profound way coming to our world with the same same wonderful goodness and uh, loving kindness of God. Uh, And I I think we could connect that when also to the mission work of the church. When the gospel reaches a country, uh, that country is different. And I think it's one of the reasons that rulers uh, still often oppose the church because they realize that in this message, there's a higher loyalty, there's a new identity that doesn't permit a uh, authoritarian, totalitarian control of people, that uh, we now identify ourselves with God and we are his and and no one else's. You know, I just uh, earlier today, I was reading the martyrdom of Polycarp and here the uh, Roman emperor gave him all kind of opportunities to deny Christ and be set free. And Polycarp, according to the tradition, we're you know not always sure of the historicity, but the tradition rightly said, you know, Polycarp said, I belong to Christ. I've served him all my life, and I intend to serve him now as I die. And that identity issue, I think, is still present when the gospel when christ comes to a culture it's people are different even if they reject the gospel they have heard the truth and we pray that god's grace will reach out and and touch them in a way that uh, you know many can come to the light and uh, know that the the timing uh, is god's grace and mercy for them Right. I mean, I'm reminded of the way St. Paul speaks. I think it's in Second Corinthians that he writes to them, you know, today is the day of salvation. Right now, as you are hearing the gospel, that is when God is coming to you with this goodness, this loving kindness in order, as it says in verse five, to save. So, so when this appeared, he saved us. And then you get the negative side, not because of works done by us in righteousness. I mean, this is a very clear statement of salvation by grace alone. Your salvation didn't come because anything you did in righteousness. That's that's exactly right. Now, it's all it's all gift and it's a gift that comes not abstractly in uh, uh ideas, but it comes in the flesh of Christ and in his uh life, death and resurrection is is concrete. And I think the um, uh, the kind of detail, for example, uh, German scholars for a long time were saying they didn't think Pontius Pilate was a historical person because he, he wasn't named in the uh, uh, Latin annals of uh, Rome. Well, uh, then in the 50s, a, a farmer was plowing over in uh, uh, the Caesarea Maritima, and uh, lo and behold, there... He had a big rock, and it was an inscription to Pontius Pilate, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think shows how beautiful the incarnation is. He Jesus came at a particular time and in a particular place, not, not abstractly, but concretely in the flesh. Uh, 
And now when he's proclaimed and held up before the world, uh, he's he's here as well. Uh, Dr. Winthy, in that in that phrase where Paul says, you know, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, I, I want to, in the, the matter of the, our righteousness there, I mean, on the one hand, you know, in the context, verse 3 up above has very clearly stated that we are not righteous. You know, the works that we were doing included foolish, disobedient, led astray, and, and so forth. And so certainly I'm not going to be saved by that. But I think this verse also, then, if we think about our status as Christians, you know, once we've been given this new identity, Paul would also include in here that we're not saved by the good works we do after we've been brought to Christ either, before and after. This is all God's grace that's saving us, not the works that we do either before or after we, we become Christians. It's, it's always God's grace. Right. I, I think that's a very important thing to underscore is that, you know, even our best efforts uh, after we become Christians are not free of selfishness, of motives that aren't pure. Uh, we're always uh, what Luther used to call uh, saint and sinner. You know, Simmel used to set the cotter. And, and as much as we try to abstract the uh, sinful part, it hangs around and makes us uh, vulnerable. Whereas when we rely completely on God's grace, there is freedom and there is fullness. And I think the, the lavish way in which God's mercy is described and the uh, washing of regeneration, that's all movement from God uh, to us. And, and that makes us secure. You know, we have uh, his action to rely upon rather than our own uh, frailty. Well, and, and included in that action of God, that is a movement from him to us. I mean, very clearly here, Paul it talks about baptism in that way, that, that holy baptism is not something that, that I'm doing for God. It's not about my decision for Christ or my commitment to God. Rather, is rather baptism is God washing me, uh, regenerating me, renewing me. So, so take us into that, that lavishness that Paul describes here when it comes to holy baptism. Yeah, this is, uh, I think, just beautiful. And, and you know, he talks about the renewal of the Holy Spirit who has been poured out upon us richly, uh, fully, abundantly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So you have this uh, saving intent, and then along with it comes justification by his grace in verse 7, that we might become heirs, and that too is an identity issue that now we're not simply uh, citizens of the kingdom, but now we're heirs and joined to God in his grace. And I I think the uh, role of baptism is so beautifully um, described here. And uh, in our culture, you know, where there's so much emphasis upon uh, uh, rationality and us being in control. I think there's something beautiful about infant baptism where it's clearly God giving this identity to the child. And even in adult baptism, it's a action of God towards the tenant, towards the saved child. And uh, that, that, is uh, lavish. It's it's uh, expansive, and 
we can never, I think, fully realize the vastness of God's mercy in Christ uh, to to give his own son and to do it in a particular way, a particular place, a particular time that now we can receive and live uh, all by his grace. Yeah, I mean, to, it is uh, when Christmas is one of those times in particular. I know for for me, uh, and I think it's it's most apparent for me personally on Christmas Day, where you just you have to pause and and just stop in in wonder that the the child laying there in the manger that's that's God, and and He's come because He loves me, even though I'm this terrible sinner that Paul described in verse three. This this child is God, and He's come for me, and it is this same God then. Who who you know grabs me by the neck, sinner and all, and washes me in the water and word to make me his own. That's I mean that that's just a profound grace and and a love that you just don't see anywhere else. We can we can come up with analogies and and you know talk about the love of of a parent for for a child. And I I love my children dearly, but I I know that the love that God has for me in Christ so much surpasses that, and, and he's actually poured it out on me in holy baptism. Paul Paul very specifically here calls it the washing of, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So tell us a little bit more about those two terms in particular. What does it mean that baptism is a washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit? I think it uh, signals that this is a, a new birth. This is uh, regeneration. It, it's a... Uh, kind of a new being that's being brought into fullness uh, as God's child. And uh, we can simply be renewed through his gift and through his wonderful uh, kind of constituting of us as his child. In fact, if I can, uh, as we visited here, I'm looking in my office and uh, a baptismal certificate for my father uh, October 25th, 1908, and it's in German, but the passage is, you know, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So you have, and what I like about this old baptismal certificate, it's very large, very colorful, but when you look at it, it really underscores what's happening here. And instead of a, you know, just a statement of fact, the artwork serves the reality that now a new being is coming into play by God's grace, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, I just maybe we need to pause on Holy Spirit too. That here's where uh, you know we rejoice that the Holy Spirit has brought us. Uh, Luther's kind of commentary, you know, that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe, but he has come and the Holy Spirit has called and has made me uh, Christ. So tying the Holy Spirit to baptism uh, is, is just a beautiful further indication of regeneration and renewal. Yeah, and and I I love the and I think tell me if if this is correct, Doctor Winthy, but I think you you see the the action of the Holy Trinity within this passage. So if if in verse four, if the you know when the goodness of and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, so that reference would be to the Father, 
And then we've got the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit there in verse 5. And then he's poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I, I think that that there's a—I mean, it would make sense in a, a passage about baptism, but there's a reference to the, the Holy Trinity here, I think. I, I'm uh, entirely uh, with you there. In fact, I, I thank you for bringing that up, because if, if you look at verse 4, God, our Savior— is a perfect parallel to what's down in verse 6 through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Both of those uh, identify and I think show that the Holy Trinity works as a uh, saving community. Or, you know, they are uh, in every way uh, congruent in their saving work. And so the Father sends the Son. The Son is uh, the... Savior and the Holy Spirit is active, so it's a Trinitarian text. Uh, I, you're exactly right. Yeah, and again, I mean, in, in a text about holy baptism, when when Jesus instituted Christian baptism, he said to baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so to see the, again, the the loving kindness, the goodness of God as Holy Trinity is is marvelous and shouldn't surprise us. Now we've we've talked a little bit about this already, but let's let's dig a little more into the the matter of you know. Okay, so I'm, and this is one long sentence, so it's kind of hard to to pick out just one phrase. But in verse six, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Talk more about the the richness. I think you said it can also be translated abundantly. Talk about the the right. richness and the and the abundance that's given in holy baptism. Yeah, I, I think the uh, word here is is a wonderful word that denotes fullness and uh, expansive kind of uh, giving uh, through Jesus Christ. So. Uh, you know, the promise of Christ to send the Comforter even when he's gone, the promise uh, to be, uh, for the Spirit to be with us and to witness to Christ. I think it's all uh, embedded in this uh, text, verses uh, 5 and 6, and the renewal theme of um, the Holy Spirit daily coming and holding us to Jesus in the Father. So that is uh, is so important for Christians to to in a sense let the Holy Spirit do His work and not be um, relying on one's own will or one's own piety, but confessing that the Holy Spirit is working uh, the Christian's life forward and is the chief reason that uh, we're God's children. You know that. It's the Spirit who attends us and holds us in Christ's uh, being and in the Father's life. And, and the result of this, in verse 7, is that so that being justified by his grace, you mentioned toward the beginning that, that justification, this is a key Pauline term. So how does, how does justification by grace fit into this passage? Yeah, I think it, it parallels the thought that it was uh, verse 5, not because it works done by us but rather being justified by his grace. So again, it anchors our salvation in his benevolence, in, in the Father's goodness, in, in Christ's reaching us, that we might become heirs and uh, to hope for eternal life. And I think that eternal life, rather than our thinking of um, uh, wonderful uh, mountain beauty and golf courses or whatever, 
we need to think about the life of the Holy Trinity, that our the, the beauty of heaven and eternal life is going to be the presence of the Holy Trinity. And by God's grace, we will participate in that life and witness it uh, for eternity. So the, uh, like, uh, again, I'll just mention one phrase of C.S. Lewis. Is, he says that, uh, the beauty of heaven is the presence of the Trinity, and the horror of hell is the absence of God. It's, it's worse than the flames and all that uh, is uh, re- real there, because the the absence of God is is so dark. Whereas the presence of God is the wonder and the beauty of heaven. I mean, I think that that's such an important point that to be to be with God. And and then I mean to connect that to to Christmas again, the the wonder of of Christmas to go to Matthew chapter 1 is that in Jesus God is with us. He's Emmanuel. And this is I mean this is such a, a huge theme in the entire Old Testament. I mean and and into the new as well, of course. I mean we've here on Sharper Iron we this past summer we we were studying both Jeremiah and Ezekiel and particularly just coming out of Ezekiel the you know where where is God dwelling? Is he there in the temple? Is he with the exiles? Where where is he? You know where does he live? How is he going to live with his people? And, I mean this is the wonder of Christmas is that God has come to be with us in Jesus. You mentioned John 1 earlier that that he's tabernacled among us. And then the the result of it is that he's going to to take us to dwell with him forever, and that is what you know that's what makes heaven heaven for all of the the wonderful descriptions you have in the book of Revelation of the of the river and the the tree of life. What what makes it heaven is is that's where God is that that he's going to right. dwell with us as our God, and we get to dwell there with him as his people. I you know, and I think we can even. Uh you know, apply that to our worship life. You know, where a congregation has been uh, saved, as uh, Titus points out here, they know that Jesus is there in word and in sacrament. He's there feeding them with his very body and blood. He's there recalling their baptism and inviting new uh, adults and children into their Christian identity. And I, I love the part of the liturgy that says, that, you know, we're singing with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven so that Christ is with us here in our worship, in our baptism. He is with the saints eternally. And so there's this wonderful unity of worship. And it's what we can look forward to ever, you know. And, and so the beauty of of our Christian worship is a foretaste of the wonders to come in Christ's presence. And I, I think we have to uh, challenge uh, a view of Jesus as uh, a means to a greater end. You know, I think some people think, well, I, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And, and so I, I believe in Jesus. Well, he's not a means to a greater end. He is the end. He is a true life for us. And we'll see that uh, in all of its fullness when we're with him in heaven. But now we see it in his word, in his holy presence on the altar and at the font. 
Dr. Winthy, we have about three minutes left on the morning. As you reflect on this text from Titus 3, help us once again to see this wonderful news that Paul has for us about salvation by grace and, and how this text points us to the beauty that is ours in Christ, our Savior, who's come at Christmas. I, I would just underscore, uh, you know, the theme of, of God's action here as being totally loving, totally caring, totally merciful. And I, I think, for example, of a passage like uh, Jesus states, there's joy among the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. So that that joy that uh, heaven enjoys is what the uh, Savior has placed in us now. The, uh, we can rejoice that we are significant, that unlike many in our culture, uh, we know there's meaning that history has as its primary cause the love of God in Christ Jesus, and that love is extended lavishly in his word and in holy baptism and sacraments. So uh, uh, my urging would be to see God in all his beauty and goodness. It's more profound than we can ever intellectually apprehend, but it's also true uh, now and forever, and can give us life that has profound integrity because it has profound mercy in Christ. Dr. Dean Winthy is professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, helping us today with Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. Dr. Winthy, thanks for being our guest today. It was a treat to be with you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. God's grace has appeared for you, dear Christians, in Christ, at his birth at Christmas, in the water and word that has washed you, and in his word that is preached to you still, so that you would be with him in eternity. If you have any questions about Titus 3 or any of these epistles, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.